Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And remember, you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, GoodPods, whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and on, and on TikTok as Let's Talk Micro. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, leave a review if, you're, you know, if your application allows you to do so, and definitely follow on social media, leave any comments, suggestions, like any possible uh, podcast topic suggestions. Those are always welcome and appreciated. And definitely on social media, I always like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So definitely subscribe and follow. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, go ahead and do so. So it was a continuation on bacillus species. If you remember on the first episode, I started going over the different groups. And that's something that's very common in microbiology. Well, you have organisms that are put in groups or complexes. So with bacillus, you have several groups. You know, and I talked about like bacillus serious group, you know, and other groups. So I went over that. And then on the last episode, I went over morphology, biochemicals, and media. So bacillus, they are catalyst positive. And as far as morphology, you tend to have large colonies that are beta-hemolytic. However, not all are beta-hemolytic. And this is something that plays an important role with bacillus and traces. And as we go along, I will continue to re reinforce this because it is very important. So colonies of bacillus serious, they are beta-hemolytic and spreading. They have like an almost waxy appearance. And then you have bacillus subtilis that has dull waxy colonies that may or may not be hemolytic. And I also mentioned bacillus mycoides, whose colonies are rhizoid. It can almost look fuzzy and make you think that a mole is present. And this is something that I just, you know, make sure that you put it in that little drawer in your mind, put it in the back of your mind, and remember bacillus mycoides. Because a lot of times maybe you're working with some sort of environmental sample, and then you get this, you know, you open your plate, you see those fuzzy colonies, and then you think it's a mold. So, you know, you go ahead and gram stain it, and then you see that it's a gram-positive rot. So definitely keep it in mind. Like everything in microbiology, you know, it's all about repetition. So as you see it more and more and more, then you definitely, you know, you will definitely start remembering it. And then so it's just, it's not quite like a mold so it's not as fuzzy but it's definitely you see like the rhizoid and so it can be definitely confused with a mole at the beginning but of course you know like everything on micro you have to do the proper testing and even if you think it's a mole by doing the gram stain you will realize that it is not so keep that in mind and you know bacillus you know they grow well on your standard media like your blood your chocolate your C cna and your PEA. So there are definitely great players when it comes to growing on agar. Of course, you know, agar that is for gram-positive organism. So blood, chocolate, PEA, 
and CNA. And then on the episode, I went over, you know, three different types of agar. One of them was the chromogenic, and then the others were the MEYP or MYP, which is for mannitol, egg yolk, and polymixing. And then there's also the PEMBA, which is the P-E-M-B-A. So with the chromogenic agar, like other chromogenic agar that I have you know, talked about before, right? So there's, on the, on the media, you know, right? There's always something that when the colonies grow, they turn a color. And you're looking for that particular color with the organism. So that's for chromogenic agar. So with the MEYP and your PEMBA, they're very similar. So you have mannitol as your, you know, your carbon source, your sugar, and then you have the egg yolk, and you have your polymixing. So polymixing is to inhibit the growth of normal flora. And then, so you have, like I mentioned with the mannitol salt, so there's a pH indicator. So that's the difference in the agar between PEMBA and MYP. On MYP, the pH indicator, it's phenol red. If the colonies ferment the mannitol, they will turn yellow. And if they don't, they will turn red. With the PEMBA, the pH indicator, it's bromothymol blue. So if the colonies ferment the mannitol, they will still be yellow. But if they don't, they are blue instead of the red, you know, seen with the MYP. And with fermentation, right, if it's as a product fermentation acid is produced, and that's why, you know, you have that acid, that pH indicator that measures the changes in pH. So then with that medium, you know, it also has the, the egg yolk, which contains the lecithin. So if the organism hydrolyzes the lecithin, then it leaves a white precipitate. So with this agar bacillus series, it does not ferment mannitol. So your colonies are going to be uh, red for the MYP or blue with the PEMBA. However, it will hydrolyze the lecithin, so you will see this white precipitate. And that's what this agar is for. It's definitely used in the food industry. This used to detect bacillus cereus in food. As I mentioned before, bacillus cereus, it is seen in, you know, it's called the fried rice poisoning. It is seen, you know, food poisoning. So definitely it is intended for, to test for bacillus in food. Overall, a great episode. If you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. And I've been mentioning, you know, that bacillus anthracis was going to have its own episode. And here it is. So today's episode is about that. So this is one of the organisms that we hope we never see in our careers. And it's a good thing, right? It is definitely a significant pathogen. And it has the potential of being used as a bioterror agent. Do you remember another organism that has that potential that I mentioned in this podcast? Well, if you're thinking about your senior pestis, then yes. So definitely bacillus anthracis. Very significant. Bacillus anthracis, it is part of the bacillus cereus group. And I already went over the spores, and bacillus anthracis is a spore producer. Anthrax, it's rare in Europe and North America. And like I said, more than likely, most of us will never see it in our careers and also outside of the lab. 
which is a very good thing. However, we are trained to recognize it in the lab, just like we are trained to recognize Yersinia pestis. And I will talk more about that later, but remember, in the episode about Yersinia pestis, I go over the laboratory response network, or the LRN, and also terms such as Sentinel Lab and Reference Lab. So definitely check out that episode if you haven't already. So Bacillus anthracis is found in the soil. And before I go over morphology, media, and biochemicals, let's go ahead and talk about anthrax. So anthrax, it affects mostly sheep, cattle, horses, and other wild and domestic animals. And that brings the question, how do humans acquire anthrax? Well, we do when we are inoculated with the spores. And this can be through like trauma, injection, or inhalation. An example of ingesting spores, it's like, you know, ingesting meat that has the spores. Another example for, for injection will be like for drug users, the drugs might be contaminated with the spores. And as far as inhalation, you know, like spreading them through the air. The spores, they play an important role as a potential bioterror agent. You know, they can be spread in the air and they can infect a large number of people. So anthrax has four forms, cutaneous, gastrointestinal, inhalation, and injectional. And the Manual of Clinical Microbiology from the ASM, or American Society for Microbiology, it says that adult males account for the majority of the cases. Most human infections are cutaneous anthrax, and according to the ASM manual, these cases account for around 99% of natural acquired cases. So let's go ahead and talk about cutaneous anthrax. So with it, you get a small papule within two to six days that eventually develops into a black necrotic lesion known as the eschar. And if you're a student out there, definitely remember that. And I always like to point these things out because they can be very helpful when you're taking an exam, like your ASCP or any other board. You know, you get case studies and they give you gram stains, they give you reactions, you know, biochemicals. And then you're looking at these and they always, you know, they mostly, they give you like a little piece of information that you associate with the organism like a little bit of a telltale that it helps you narrow it down. So when you're looking at these, right, if you see Eschar, definitely associate it with anthrax. So a good case study, right, you get gram-positive rods, catalase positive, and then, you know, the patient had an Eschar. So you definitely associate that with anthrax. So keep that in mind. And also I'll be talking about more things that as I go through the episode, Definitely make sure you keep those in mind as well. So now that we have talked about cutaneous anthrax, let's talk a little bit about inhalational anthrax. And definitely, if you're a student, associate the terms wool sorters disease and rack pickers disease with it. And these are terms used for the respiratory infections. You know, as mentioned before, anthrax is seen primarily in sheep, cattle, and domestic animals. So the spores might be inhaled when you're handling animal-related items like wool and fibers. So definitely remember this if you get a case study with gram-positive rods, right? Catalase positive, and you see the terms used, wool sorters, 
rack pickers definitely associate those with anthrax. So if that question you know pops in your chest, you will be ready. And there can be complications with anthra, you know, from anthrax, such as meningitis, but overall it is very treatable. As far as virulence, there are two plasmid-borne toxins that are called lethal toxin and edema toxin. And okay, before moving to morphology, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the Bacillus cereus biobar anthracis. If you're a student on a fairly new tech, you might not know about this. However, you know, if you're like a director, maybe like a graduate student, that you're more involved, you know, overall, like supervising a large department, you know, and dealing with testing and organisms, you are in all likelihood are definitely familiar with this organism. So this is a strain of Bacillus cereus that has the virulence determinant of Bacillus anthracis. It also has the potential for bioterror. So when you're thinking about ruling out Bacillus anthracis, this one needs to have the same consideration. So I found some information about it, you know, the ASM and the Association of Public Health Laboratories, they published some information on this. So it causes anthrax-like disease, and it was seen in gorillas and chimpanzees in Africa. Additionally, it was recovered from elephants and goats. And as I was doing the research for this episode, there are no human cases of this strain. So keep that in mind. As far as morphology, it is non-hemolytic and modal. So I know what you're thinking because those of us that work in the lab, right, you're definitely thinking you have a non-hemolytic bacillus. And with bacillus, right, if it's hemolytic, you rule out anthracis. And if it's non-hemolytic, you do a motility. And then if it's positive, then it rules out anthracis. So this kind of complicates things, you know, a little bit in a way. But think about the fact that it hasn't been recovered in humans. The likelihood of you having it in the lab, it's very low. So don't go ahead and assume that every non-hemolytic model bacillus that you have, it's this particular organism. As of right now, there are no protocols to rule it out like there are for bacillus anthracis. However, you know, there are some recommendations. So if you have, you know, a non-hemolytic bacillus that is modal from a sterile source, maybe check the history, check if the, if the physician has this in mind. You know, it can be a little unlikely, but still check. In all likelihood, it is another species of bacillus. Another recommendation is to suspect isolates that are large and non-hemolytic at 24 hours and CO2. And they recommend using a semi-solid medium for motility. They can appear hemolytic at 48 hours. You know, it's just something, an organism that just, you know, keep in the back of your mind that there's a strain out there that has been seen in animals and that causes anthrax-like disease. So let's go ahead and talk about morphology and biochemicals. As mentioned before, it is a spore former. So, and this in a gram stain, it can be seen by the clearing in the cells. They don't stain. And if you see them, they are terminally or centrally located. So remember that as I'm talking about this. All work with the bacillus anthracis, it needs to be done in a BSL level 2 facility 
using BSL-3 precautions. Colonies are medium to large. They are gray and have a ground glass appearance, and they are non-hemolytic. The colonies demonstrate a medusa head or comet tail, and this is like a spiking or tailing along the lines of inoculation. And also when you touch them with a lube, you know, they stand up. So students, remember this, medusa head, comet tail, bacillus, and thracis. They are catalase positive, and just like other bacillus, they grow well on media where gram-positive organisms grow, such as blood, chocolate, PEA, and CNA. And for the benefit of the audience, I am going to touch on BSL levels. These are levels of laboratory safety. So a biosafety level 2, or BSL-2, it applies to most clinical, teaching, and diagnostic labs. In there, you handle microorganisms that have a moderate risk and are seen in the community. At this level, you can work with those organisms on an open bench. However, if there is a risk of aerosol or splashing, then you need to work with a hood, which is a biological safety cabinet. BSL-3 is working for agents with agents that are transmitted via respiratory route and you need a BSC, or Biological Safety Cabinet, Class 1 or 2. So let's go ahead and talk about motility. You know, I have talked about motility before, but let's go ahead and go over it thoroughly. Motility is movement by means of flagella, and this can be done in two ways, by performing a wet mount or by using semi-solid agar. So let's go ahead and start with the wet mount preparation. And this is where the 40X objective is helpful. You go ahead and make a suspension with the colonies. And while saline can be used for some organisms, it is recommended for bacillus that you use a broth such as BSI, BHI. Sorry. A drop is placed in a clean slide, so a very simple procedure. And a cover slip is added. And then you wait for your cells to settle, which is about one minute. And then you go ahead and examine it using the 40x objective. You are looking for directional movement, right? So it's moving in one direction. Do not confuse it with Brownian movement, which is like a random movement. So if the, if the test is negative, the broth needs to be incubated for an additional 24 hours. Keep that in mind. And it says that you can make like a lighter suspension, which you are initially looking at it. And if you need to re-incubate it, make, maybe make a little bit of a heavier suspension. In the lab, sometimes, you know, I have seen it. And keep in mind, the procedure tells you to incubate it for 24 hours. I have seen it work in about four hours. So this is kind of helpful when you're, you know, working on one shift and you get to complete it before your shift is over. But let's say in the morning you come in, you do a motility is negative, and then you incubate the broth. And then four hours later, maybe after lunch, you go ahead and check it. And a lot of time it works. But as always, you know, make sure you follow proper procedures. There are some things that work, but don't rush it. If you still don't see any movement, make sure you hold it for the full 24 hours. And then the other method is using media. So motility agar. And so the agar comes in a tube 
and also very straightforward. You grab your colonies with a loop, and then you stab your agar like around the center of it, and then you retrieve your your loop, and then you incubate your tube, and then any growth outside of the inoculation line that's considered a positive result. A lot of this agar, actually, some of them come with an indicator that is called the TTC, which is triphenyltrazolium chloride. And this is a dye that is colorless, but as the organism grows and incorporates it in its cells, it turns red. And it will help you visualize the growth. So a negative result for motility is if you only see red along the inoculation line. If you see growth outside of the line, it is positive. And for bacillus anthracis, this test should be negative. Either by the microscope, right, you don't see movement, or by the agar, it's, it is restricted to the inoculation line, you know, the growth. So I made a reference to the Yersinia episode. If you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. But definitely for the benefit of, of new listeners, so just like Yersinia pestis, Bacillus anthracis has the potential of being used as a bioterror agent. You know, the spores, they can be released and they can infect a large number of people. And as I mentioned, we might never see it in our careers, which is a good thing. But as, as medical lab laboratory scientists, we are trained to recognize it. In the Yersinia episode, I talked about the Laboratory Response Network, or the LRN. And this was established in 1999 by the CDC in partnership with the Association of Public Health Laboratories and the FBI. And the purpose of this was to create a network of laboratories to recognize, test, and identify potential agents of bioterror. It has several tiers, and one of them is the Sentinel Lab. So basically, the lab that you work on, you know, your clinical lab, that is the Sentinel Lab. So this is where you perform your regular testing right, as normal, and then if you suspect a bioterror agent, and keep in mind while you are performing the work, always using the proper PPE and the proper BSL practices. So if you suspect a bioterror agent, then you communicate that to your reference lab, which is your state, send out, you know, your health state department. And then you, so you are the sentinel, and then the reference lab, is the state health department and they are the ones that once you communicate and you send a sample properly packaged they are the ones that are going to rule in or out that suspect organism and also for the benefit of new listeners so in the lab we have an lpx which is the laboratory preparedness exercise i don't know if you remember that but this was a collaborative effort between the college of american pathologists the cdc and the Association of Public Health Laboratories. So you receive the organisms, and the objective is to test labs on how to handle them and follow the proper protocols in shipping them to the reference lab. So you're testing, you're tested on handling it, proper identification as far as you can get, you know, properly packaging, and proper communication. And it's a very simple, no, it's not simple, but just so you get some samples, they come with a case study, you play them on agar, as you normally would with a sample, and then you every day you check them, and you perform your test, and you go through the criteria, 
and you rule out a bioterror organism. And these samples, you're working them in a biological safety cabinet too. And typically in that hood, you have a container with bleach where you're putting, you know, you're placing your loops, your sticks, your slides, you know, things that you are using to work out this organism. I do remember one time that I was working on them one year and I had one that was a suspect bacillus anthracis. Remember, these organisms, they are, they simulate the bioterror agent. They're not the real thing. But I had one that resembled bacillus anthracis, so definitely I remember, you know, the ground glass appearance. And when I touched them with the loop, I remembered the colonies standing up. So from the point of a, of a biomedical scientist or a medical laboratory scientist, I mean, it was cool to see that. You know, it wasn't a real sample, so in a real scenario, you will definitely be worried and because it is anthrax. But it was, it was a cool experience seeing that. And not all the samples that you get on that survey, they are bioterror agents. You know, you get like a regular bacillus or a haemophilus. So keep that in mind. As far as doing any, using any commercial identification systems, do not use those to identify bacillus and traces. They are unreli unreliable, and at the same time, you don't want to have that organism, you know, you don't want to expose it around. So let's go ahead and tie everything together. So in a real-life scenario, if you suspect bacillus and traces, right, immediately take those plates to the proper hood, work them up, you know, seal them, and definitely alert your supervisor, and then go through the steps. So if you are working this survey, this is the criteria that you have when you are ruling out bacillus and traces. So gram stain, you have a large gram-positive rod. You do a catalase, it is positive. Then you go ahead and check for hemolysis. If it's beta-hemolytic, you have ruled out bacillus and traces. If it's non-hemolytic, you go ahead and do a motility. If it's motility positive, you have ruled out bacillus and traces. If it's negative, you haven't ruled it out. So, large gram-positive rods, catalase positive, motility negative, non-hemolytic. If you see beta-hemolysis, bacillus and traces is ruled out. If your motility is positive, bacillus and traces is ruled out. So, if you're at that point in time, when you have a large gram-positive run, catalyst-positive, non-hemolytic, non-modal, at that point in time, you haven't ruled out bacillus and traces. So you go ahead and notify your reference lab that you are sending an organism that you have been unable to rule out as bacillus and traces. You document this communication and send the sample. And of course, make sure that it is properly packaged. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about bacillus and traces. As always, I enjoy talking about this information and sharing it with you. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important, right? It will definitely make you better 
at what you do. Such a great work. We learn so much. We help so much the patients. As always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.